Okay, that's fine. That's fine, Sandra. So you've had these headaches keeping you up all night for about three months. Sorry to hear that. And hmm, okay, I need to start by taking a history. Then we'd normally do a neuro exam. Oh, and uh, I know your smear test is due as well. So if you wouldn't mind booking for that as well. But anyway, do you want to start by telling me a bit more about these headaches? Hello again, it's Monir Adam and welcome to another episode on Primary Care UK, the podcast for all clinicians in primary care. In this episode, we're going to introduce the emerging theme of the power of language in consultations. We're going to learn about things like formulaic language, verbal tics and institutionalized language. And uh, don't worry if you're thinking, what on earth is that? It'll be explained clearly and with the overall aim of making us better at consultations. In fact, if you felt a bit put off by the terms I just used, that just reinforces one of the points that will be made, as you will see, or hear, should I say. Now, I honestly do believe, and this is just my personal view really, that in the UK we have some of the best training and consultation skills anywhere in the world. It's also been a passion of mine since I was a trainee. The truth is that Health professionals, researchers and others in the UK realised a very long time ago that there is so much more that goes on during a consultation than what might appear to be the case at face value. There have also been lots of consultation models developed, various theories and research into what actually works, with the patient at the heart of the consultation. But you know something, quite apart from it being important for patients, for me, I personally enjoy doing consultations even after several years. And I believe it's because of my attention to consultation style, realising the impact that has and striving to improve it wherever I can. You see, if you focus on consultation skills, when things go well, you feel good about it. And when they don't, you take on the challenge to try and improve rather than getting burnout, which is also very common. But hey, this episode isn't about your well-being. That's what the last episode was about. So let's move on. So, uh, yeah, it caught my attention when I came across an email from Rupa, one of the associate deans working for Health Education England. She mentioned the power of language in consultations, and I don't think I'd come across looking at consultations with that lens. I then watched a video she shared, and sure as hell, I've been getting it wrong, at least in some of my consultations. The thing is, regardless of your professional background, one of the things that you, I, and all of us have in common as primary care clinicians, is that we do consultations, and consultations have long been known as being the cornerstone in general practice. So anything out there that can help us improve on that is welcome, right? Just one more thing before we move on to our experts for the day. You heard the scenario clip at the start of the episode, right? Without going back to it, was there anything you heard that could be improved upon? Well, if you noticed quite a few things, well done. And if you didn't, don't worry, we're going to play it again at the end. Okay, so now let's hear from our speakers for today. Would you like to introduce yourselves and then also mention how you found yourselves getting involved with the power of language in consultations? Um. My name's Rupal Shah. Um, I'm a GP in Battersea uh, and I've worked for Health Education England for several years. And part of my role there um, is to help candidates who are struggling with a particular GP exam called the Recorded Consultation Assessment. Um, And there were patterns of language that we observed 
when we were trying to help these candidates, which I think um, quite relevant for today's podcast. My name's Lynn Rostetsky, and um, my background is in languages and linguistics. And I've been working with healthcare professionals now for most of my career. Um, and I work with RU, the professional support unit, part of the professional development team, where we support clinicians to develop their communication skills in all clinical contexts. So that's with patients, with colleagues, written or spoken language, um, on whether they're native speakers of English or non-native speakers. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for that. And consultation skills and the aspect, certainly in primary care, has always been a very big thing to focus on. Um, but I have to admit, I'd never heard of it explained in this way or he- or with this sort of headline of the power of language in consultations. So let's start with the obvious question. In a nutshell, what actually is that? I think a lot of the work that we do in primary care is all about connection and language plays such a fundamental part in that. It's all about focused attention, establishing that connection between yourself and the person um, sitting in front of you. I think that makes the world of difference. You know, interestingly, with the Health Education England work, I've been listening to a lot of patients telling me about their experience of healthcare systems. And what comes up every single time I talk to somebody is that they want that focused attention. They want to feel that they individually have been seen and heard and understood and that's all about language isn't it so i think it's the most powerful tool we have okay and definitely amongst our listeners there are going to be some who have been taught extensively about consultation skills during their training so for example i know that gp training that's always been a a major thing to focus on but there are also others who might not necessarily have had that level of coverage in their training um, and also, even those who did, let's admit it, we do forget these things, don't we, in, in busy day-to-day life in primary care. So it may be useful just to revisit why these things actually matter. Um, you know, why does why is it so important? Why does this language matter? I mean, one might say patient presents with a problem, you deal with their problem or try to, and off they go. Why isn't that good enough? Because I think people just come back again and again. If you haven't got to the nub of why they've come in, then in fact, it becomes very inefficient because they don't just go away. They may go away that time and have the blood test or, um, you know, take the prescription, but will they take the medicine? Probably not. Will they come back? Almost certainly, yes. Uh, Because if they can't find a way in the first time, you know, people tend to keep trying or maybe even worse, you know, particular groups might just think, well, you know, there's no point. Someone, you know, this person doesn't understand me. So the health service doesn't understand me. It's not the right place for me. So I'm just going to take myself away from it. And I think, um, you know, that happens particularly to certain disadvantaged groups. You know, they, they may try. I'm thinking about teenagers, um, young people, people with mental health problems. I think that to actually uh, make the effort and, and come into um, a GP setting is really hard. And we completely underestimate the effort that that takes. So that first encounter or any encounter is really, really important. Um, And it's not, I think sometimes what's written on the label isn't what's inside the tin. You know, um, you you may think, oh, let me just deal with this presenting problem um, and then everything will be better. I can send someone away um, and, uh, you know, I've done my job. But but have you? 
Um, that's the, the thing. I'll, I'll give you an example, Munir, if it's helpful. Sure. Um, and this is literally from my um, surgery on Monday. Um, so an, an elderly lady coming to see me. I didn't know her, actually, but with um, she was complaining of hip pain and knee pain. And I think so if you were going to take that kind of surface approach, um, you know, you, you might say, well, go and uh, see a physiotherapist and here's some paracetamol etc. Um, but there was just something about the way she said it. And I, it made me then ask her a bit more about, well, why are you coming now? Why is the pain worse now? And then she said, well, my granddaughter has been away. I live with my granddaughter. She's been away. So then we had a conversation about, well, is a pain generally worse when you're on your own? And, and she said, you know, it really is. And then it transpired that the real reason or, or you know, a major part of, of her story was that she found it really um, difficult to be alone, that she was used to in um, her earlier life being surrounded by neighbours and friends and she was lonely. And so we could then take a completely different approach for her. And that was, I think it was just something, noticing something about the tone of her voice and pausing and just asking. How amazing. It makes one realise how attentive you have to be in a consultation. And part of this story rings true for how to deliver high quality. But even thinking purely from an economical point of view, it does suggest that a little bit of extra investment at the beginning might prevent people from coming back repeatedly. So even from that point of view, it, it makes sense to do that, doesn't it? But I'd like to now swing around the other way. There will be those listeners who will already be familiar with the importance of consultation skills. It's been said for a long time that the consultation is the cornerstone of general practice. And there's been extensive research into this over the decades. Multiple consultation models have developed, which, of course, trainees absolutely love memorizing for their exams. <laughs> Not so. Is this yet another model of the consultation or is it based on one of the models that exist? Where does this all fit into it all? I think um, lots of consultation models incorporate um, some of what we're saying. But actually, this is fundamentally about paying attention, paying focused attention and having a conversation. Um, so in some ways, it's not allowing templates and um, kind of formulations to govern what you say and how you communicate. This is about being human. For me, it's it's essentially about really paying attention and about being human and not using language that you wouldn't use in a normal conversation and responding. So um I think not everybody likes the metaphor of a dance, but if you uh, conceptualise the conversation in a consultation a bit like a dance, then you're sort of moving in time with your partner and not treading all over their toes because you want to get to a particular point regardless of what they're doing. Well, that certainly puts a positive spin on it, which um, almost makes me guilty for asking the next question, which almost has a negative spin on it, which is this, that busy frontline clinician, haven't got the time, is what you're advocating going to make our consultations longer? I would say this, wouldn't I? I'm going to say no, it won't. I think because if you're missing the point slightly, then people will find ways to stay in the room and try to put it again. So I think, you know, if I come back to the example of the elderly lady who, who came to see me with her joint pains, I think if I'd said to her, well, uh, which painkillers would you prefer? And, and let's talk about physiotherapy then I think she would have just stayed and she would have looked uncomfortable and she would have tried other things um, and it would have taken some time. So, uh, you know, I, I really don't think it 
it should take extra time. I think it's more efficient use of time because you're tailoring it to what somebody actually needs from you at that time. Um, Mm-hmm. No, that's not a not that doesn't come with a guarantee. Sometimes it takes longer, but I don't think it has to take longer. I can certainly relate to the point you said earlier about patients um, staying in the room and finding another way to ask the same thing. Uh, so yeah, that that does happen sometimes, doesn't it? And you're sitting back and thinking, what have I not said or done? Yeah. Um, so well, that out of the way, let's start. Um, let's actually start learning something about what this is and what we should and should not be doing. Work, work, work us through this. An idiot's guide to this topic, perhaps. <laughs> um, well, what we know about language is that it's not just a vehicle for exchanging information. Um, and I think in many ways, busy people, busy clinicians, that exchange of information becomes a priority. But actually, we form relationships and manage relationships through the words that we use through the choices that we make about the language we employ. And um, I think we all know this because, you know, the old saying, it's it's not what you say, it's the way that you say it. I mean, that's, that's kind of a commonly understood expression. But um, we've seen through our work that the choices people make about the language they use and the language they listen to have consequences for the relationships they form. And I guess those consequences are about the trust or rapport or alignment whatever you want to call it that develops between the clinician and their patient Um, we in our work we started to notice that um, that these small details of language the way something's phrased um, the tone of voice the pace of speech uh, including body language as well um, they can form a kind of um, cumulative impression of manner which impacts on relationships so those subtle features of language they're not right in the forefront of our awareness most of the time they they're fine and they go unnoticed individually but when they're repeated they build a cumulative effect which we describe as manner you know coming across as polite and caring or perhaps a little aloof and distant and um, our team working with the the clinical educators and the linguists we work together to to name these tiny subtle features of language that were together like little pixels building a picture for the patient and vice versa of course well hopefully there aren't too many listeners thinking i'm sure my consultation skills are perfect but it might be helpful just to have some examples of where we might be getting it wrong and perhaps what's the better way to do it. Well, some aspects of our professional communication can become routine and, and unconscious, if you like, in certain situations. Um, we fall into these patterns and um, we don't notice them. But certain types of language can inadvertently create that sense of distance between people, that sense of disconnect between a clinician and a patient, because we know that similar styles of language actually contribute to the building of rapport and different styles um, can alienate to various degrees. Um, So what we started looking at was the consultation from right from the beginning. So looking at introductions and whether there was a sort of asymmetric nature to the way that the doctor introduced themselves um, and yet 
um, address the patient. So using their title as doctor or um, their professional role um, and then addressing the patient by their first name. I think that happens particularly with GPs and rarely with other with other professionals working in primary care. So I think that's a very doctor-specific example, don't you think, Lynn? You know, my perception is it's quite rude to say, hello, um, hi, Lynn, I'm Dr. Shah. I mean, would you, I don't know if a linguist would agree with that. I would personally, Rue, but I know of others who um, who might not object. I think the use of names is... is, is um, it's very subtle, isn't it? Um, age comes into it and perhaps educational background and so on. Um, but uh, broadly, I, I agree with you. I, I think that there's an imbalance sometimes. Something that I think many uh, clinicians can fall into is this use of what we call institutionalised language. That is the phrases that are not particularly medical, but they are... Um, used by clinicians routinely, they're good shorthand, they're used between clinicians um, for clear, quick communication, and they have a specific professional meaning that can be either misunderstood or completely um, confusing for the patient. So, you know, um, these phrases such as to take a history, to to manage the problem. Um, we, We can discuss further management later, for example. So it was a real light bulb moment, Lynn, um, when you first described that term, institutionalised language, because I didn't know how to articulate it. I hear learners use that kind of language a lot. You know, I'm just going to take a history or how's your mood? Or um, I'm going to talk about the management now, which, you know, is, is, they're really weird phrases um, in any kind of normal setting or context. I just have to say that um, it's interesting, the term, because we're talking about the power of language and the terms that we used. And I have to say the term institutionalized to me is almost automatically followed by racism. But that's because that's something that was very prominent in the media when I was sort of growing up and it just everybody kept talking about it. And yet, although we're not talking about this at all, that topic, it's bringing for me uh, the importance of this. So it's taking away from me that this isn't something just subtle, but this is actually so important. So I thought that was quite interesting how a term could have such a profound impact on somebody based on their experiences. So presumably, is it okay to have medical jargon, but perhaps just not use it when we're in front of patients? Medical jargon is perfectly appropriate between professionals. Um, This is about adjusting your language to the person you're talking to and therefore aligning with their preferred style and indirectly building that rapport, getting closer, connecting um, more effectively. Um, So when a clinician says, what's your support network like? Um, We actually actually heard a patient in in, a role player patient in one of our our training sessions say, what do you mean support network? Do you mean my, my family and friends? It's a kind of uh, impersonal language that is it's clinical in that other sense of clinical, meaning quite dry and, and unfeeling. And although it works well between professionals, um, in a situation where a patient might expect a more conversational interaction, it jars. It really jars. Okay. I think this is all about moving away from the generic to the personal. I think much of life is very generic, isn't it? When you're trying to phone the bank or 
uh, book an airline ticket. Um, it's very rare nowadays to get any kind of individual attention. And I think when you go to your to the GP practice, um, people really want that. They just want to feel like it's them personally um, that you're speaking to and not some kind of generic patient. You remind me of um, business letters that sometimes have your first name on them, but then you can just tell that the entire letter is generic. Uh, yeah. So that's a very fake way of doing it. But of course, we're talking about being genuine and authentic here, aren't we? Okay, uh, well, that's, that's great. I'm learning. Um, carry on. So one way to create a more conversational feel to um, an interaction with a patient is to make it less like an interview and to help the patient to follow along with what's happening and to stay aligned with the clinician's approach and what's going to happen and to, to follow really what's being said. And what can undermine that is what we call topic leaps. So a sudden change in the topic without warning. And this gives a disjointed, very um, interrogative feel sometimes. So, for example, you, we've heard, um, I see from the notes you're an engineer, do you smoke? Do you drink alcohol? It's jumping around, um, which is very disorientating, really, for, for patients. And again, works against this feeling of, of, of being in partnership with the clinician. I think it happens when you have your own agenda um, first, when you're thinking, oh, I know I've got to ask them about whether they smoke or drink because I want to get rid of the yellow triangles. I want to, you know, erase all the warnings. Um, and that's your agenda, but it's not their agenda. And, and I think there's got to be some kind of acknowledgement of that. And that's really doable, isn't it? Because a lot of what you're saying doesn't actually require additional time or additional words. It's more just about different words. And as you mentioned a minute ago, Lynn, not jumping from topic to topic and, and without realizing that this is something that, well, it would never work in a normal conversation with somebody, with friends or family, would it? Because they'd feel that, like you're not sure where you're going with things. Yeah, there's a sense that you're just not being listened to, isn't isn't it? Which is kind of what it boils down to, and it's where we started from. Every patient I've, I've spoken to says that the most important thing is that they feel listened to. And I think if you're leaping about from topic to topic and asking random questions which don't follow on from, you know, what's already been said, then it's clear that you're not really listening. You're not listening to what uh, the person's actually saying, you're, or you're just trying to extract information. Uh, which isn't the same thing. There's a sense of what, not knowing what's going to come next. And it's actually quite, it doesn't take much linguistically to smooth those leaps, to say something like, now just a couple of questions about this, or um, you mentioned earlier that, so can I ask a bit more about that? So these little linking phrases um, that provide bridges, because inevitably there will be different topics to explore. It's just about making those transitions smoother and more conversation-like. So, listener, the patient is not on edge, as you might be in an interview thinking, my goodness, what question is coming next, but is, is actually following along and engaging in, in normal turn-taking behaviour, um, which characterises a, a conversation, really. And those little bridges, those little connections are also important for acknowledging what has been said. Um, that evidence of listening that you referred to, Rue, 
that validates what the patient has confided and gives a bit of feedback that their their thoughts, their ideas have been heard. Um, and, and that isn't, that again, that doesn't take much time. That, it, that just a little, I see, oh, that, that sounds as though that was tricky for you. Just, just little acknowledgements um, help that linking of the, of the conversation. It sounds so obvious when you say it, and yet I know I certainly get it wrong because you're so focused on covering the topics, as Rue said a few minutes ago, um, you, we have our own agenda, that we don't realize we're making those mistakes. Okay, any other words of wisdom on this? We haven't mentioned formulaic language, have we? Shall oh, we? another new term. Go on. I think it's not new to examiners. I think they're very keen on this. This One thing about using language which is um, very familiar, very routine and becomes habitual is that it can start to begin to sound quite insincere and clunky. Um a classic example of that is, I'm sorry to hear that, which can be delivered um, almost as a, a, a ref- reflex, really, almost like a conditioned response to, to negative information and um, can sound empty and really not a genuine expression of empathy. Um, and it's important to, especially important, not to, not to use these these routine phrases in places where they they're not usually heard or to repeat them in a way um, that sounds automated um, or to use them too often and um, that, that also works towards a sense of a depersonalized discussion um, an almost automated inquiry um, an example that I hear learners say quite often is, um, you know, phrases like great, great. And uh, sometimes it's really not great what the patient's saying. And it really is so jarring, I think. You know, just be careful about, you know, the words that are coming out of your mouth and how they're interpreted. Yeah, I, I was just about to say, yeah, that sounded great. <laughs> I stopped myself. <laughs> okay. Okay is particularly tricky. Okay. Okay is a phrase that can have many meanings and it's particularly easy to use it inappropriately. It can mean, depending on the tone of voice and the the place in the conversation, it can mean I understand, it it can mean I agree, it can mean tell me more, Um, it can mean all sorts of things. But it's when it becomes habitual, um, it can be dangerous, Um, it can... It can give completely the wrong impression. So that would be an example of something that is almost becoming a verbal tick where it's um, repeated inappropriately as well as appropriately, but it's the inappropriate um, use that can do the most harm. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, So in the sense that OK can have several meanings and so you don't know which way they will be receiving it and which meaning they will apply to it, especially if, if it's, habitual because when something becomes habitual you don't often have a clear expression on it you would just say in a almost a monotonous way which makes it difficult to know what the intention is i think um okay can be misinterpreted can't it people can think you mean that their symptoms that it's okay for them to have their pain or 
um, you know, disability or, or whatever symptom they've got, that uh, that's okay. Right. Okay. So <laughs> I, I just said it, didn't I? <laughs> really, I didn't mean to say it like that. Um, okay is not okay. Right. Okay. That's the take-home message. Perhaps it might be important to to also say that okay is very useful. It's a very quick way of acknowledging, but but it can be easily taken the wrong way. Um, as Rue said, if somebody says, uh, you know, I, I had a fall yesterday, okay. Well, you, you mm. probably mean there, I understand, tell me more. But it might be take, misread as that's fine. True. I was careful not to say okay there. <laughs> <laughs> Any other... Um, uh, so golden nuggets there. Any other terms that we might use frequently or inappropriately, potentially? So one interesting thing is the use of a very simple word like we, um, which is often and freely used in clinician-patient discussions. But actually, there's been some work um, done looking at clinicians' use of the word we, and it's used with three different meanings. So it can mean you and I, that is clinician and patient, um, working together. So um, we could meet again next week. We could discuss this with your daughter, if you like, um, that you and I meaning. But it has another use, which is a little bit distancing, um, a kind of um, us and you meaning. So we clinicians, we in the NHS, we don't normally prescribe more than that. We usually ask patients this question, and that has the opposite effect. It, it's that is a um, a distancing use of the word we rather than a collaborative use. And there's of course that, that third use, which means we as people um, generally. So when we don't drink enough, we can become a bit dehydrated, for example. Um, this again is one of those uses can be unconscious or out of awareness, but it is worth reflecting on as, as one of the little subtle elements that build that bigger picture of manner and engagement and, and that relationship with the patient. I think it's so interesting why particularly kind of more junior clinicians use that um, word we inappropriately or in a distancing way, because I've noticed that so much and I, I wonder if it's something about um, not wanting to take responsibility or not wanting to put your cards on the table and say I am suggesting that this is the diagnosis or I think that it wouldn't be a good idea to prescribe you morphine or um, you know it, it's much easier to kind of hide behind well we don't do it like that but that that is very distancing because you're um, you know you're becoming you're kind of retreating um, into anonymity. People can't understand what you mean by that. Well, that's that's great. It sounds like you guys could carry on forever. And there's so many things that, as I'm listening to it, I'm realizing I certainly am not uh, one who gets it right every time. And and I think there's always room for improvement. And we're busy. Uh, we trying to concentrate on so many things at the other t- at the same time. But then these kind of reminders can be really useful and very implementable. If there is such a term as that, implementable. <laughs> if if it's if it's okay, perhaps at this point we give ourselves uh, a wee moment <laughs> to to reflect um, and perhaps to summarize. Uh, so my 
key points would be, imagine this is a conversation um, in a different setting and would you use the language that you're using? But paying focused attention is really, really valuable. People love it. And I think it doesn't make the consultation longer. It just makes it more effective and kinder. You know? um, so they're my main messages. Very well said and summarised. Thank you. Lynn? I would agree absolutely with that. And I would say if you are able to think about the person in front of you, listen to the language that they're using and, and link into that, share the same terms, pick up their choice of words and, and to an extent give those words back again. And to think of that chain of communication so that it's not a disjointed Q&A session, but much more of um, a flow where two people are really listening to one another and really working together to sort out a problem, to find the best way forward and sharing their understanding at every stage. One more thing, don't look at the computer. If the person's in the room with you, uh, look at them, don't look at the computer. Aye, aye. absolutely. Never again. <laughs> if only it was that easy. Uh, well, listen, both. thank you so much. Um, there's so much um, to take away from this. And I did have an opportunity to have a, a quick watch of the video that you produced. And I found that really amazing because it's so participatory and that's really good because it, it allows one to start implementing, testing and practicing those things. Now, I'm imagining that this was produced primarily initially for the GP trainees and, and that some of this came about from there, as you were saying at the start. But a lot of um, listeners from across the professions are definitely going to be able to relate to the things that you've said. And if they'd like to find out more about it or develop their consultation skills further, what would you recommend? Where should they go or what should they do? So the link for the video we can share and it's freely accessible uh, so thank you very much for those comments. Yeah. Um, the Professional Support Unit um, has lots of resources for learners, including individual uh, sessions with fantastic colleagues like Lynn. Um, so there are lots of resources, but I think I should let Lynn explain the linguistic support on offer. Mm -hmm. Yes, the PSU has a team of linguists that are able to work, um, I'm going to say on almost every communication situation that a learner might bring, We've managed to, we work with professional role players and we've managed to create scenarios to um, try out lots of different ways of tackling difficult conversations that um, clinicians from, from all professions um, are very welcome to, to come and, uh, and work on with us. And I like what you said there, actually, about um, the term learners, because actually that's what we are. We're all learners. And this is something that I think that we will always continue to learn and we'll never quite master it completely. There may be some people like yourselves which who are probably leaps ahead. No, I'm... I've made so many mistakes. I, <laughs> I feel like I've come across as someone who just communicates perfectly. I definitely, definitely don't. Just have to ask my colleagues and patients. Um, and So this is kind of aspirational. I'm definitely not saying that I get it right. <laughs> Me neither. Absolutely not. But to add something about the video, I think it has relevance for all learners um, because these, these linguistic features that we've been talking about are popping up everywhere in, in healthcare. Everyone who wants to improve their professional communication, their relationships, 
could find it interesting and useful. Well, listen, thank you both of you for sharing your thoughts and wisdom. And I get the feeling that this is an important step forward in a journey to improve communication skills uh, rather than having totally mastered uh, the power of language. But certainly it's a big step forward in that direction. I wish you the very best as you continue this journey. And who knows, further down the line, you might be back with even more insights. Thanks. uh, Thank you very much. So there you have it. That was an introduction to the power of language. How much of those phrases do you find yourself using? Maybe keep a listen out for that when you're doing consultations next time around. And can you think of phrases other than those that have been discussed? And what sort of impact does that have? You know what? You could share those with us by including them in the feedback form. Well, hopefully one thing you will agree with is that these things do matter. And one thing that we didn't do was provide a demonstration of what it really feels like for the patient when we use those terms. And if you want to see that, the video is really good for that because it's got uh, the clinician and the patient and you can see how it feels when you're in the patient seat. A link to that video is in the description. The other thing that hopefully you will agree with is that it doesn't necessarily have to take longer to do a better quality consultation that incorporates the strategies and suggestions that have been discussed. Just like being a better driver doesn't necessarily mean being a slower driver or taking longer to reach from A to B. So similarly, it is about improving quality rather than making consultations any longer. Because I know that is clearly a concern of all of us in a busy primary care that we work in. It is just about getting into good habits. And connected with that, it's worth mentioning that one of the things that wasn't emphasized today were listening skills. Listening skills are really important and there's a lot that has been written about and discussed in relation to that and is one of the things that concerns people because we worry that if we spend a lot of time listening, we're going to slow down. But even then, it's more about the quality of listening and demonstrating rather than just spending lots and lots of time doing it. One final thing I want to say is just like with anything else, it takes practice. It's just not going to happen that we listen to an episode like this and suddenly we get it right, perfect, the next time we have a consultation. But you might want to give it a try and gradually consultations will get better. Well, that's it for today. We hope that you're finding this podcast informative and educational and that it helps us develop as a primary care community. As I always say, please do send us your feedback and suggestions by following the links in the notes section of the podcast. And until next time, keep well and keep safe. And now we'll end with the scenario again. Okay, that's fine. That's fine, Sandra. So you've had these headaches keeping you up all night for about three months. Sorry to hear that. And hmm, okay, I need to start by taking a history. Then we'd normally do a neuro exam. Oh, and uh, I know your smear test is due as well. So if you wouldn't mind booking for that as well. But anyway, do you want to start by telling me a bit more about these headaches? Primary Care UK was developed by Therapeutic Reflections Limited to inform, educate, support and unite the primary care workforce. Specifically, it is not for the general public or patients. All information and advice contained therein is time, location and context dependent and is general advice only. 
No guarantees are provided with respect to the accuracy of the content. The hosts, contributors, and the organizations they represent do not accept liability for any actions, consequences, or effects that result directly or indirectly from the content provided. Please refer to the episode description for more information. Thank you for listening.